a special bulletin. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. Five. Check for sound. Four. It's showtime. Three. Let's two, go. One. Launch. You're listening to the Pro Audio Suite, a program for audio and voiceover professionals. On the panel, from LA, George Whittam, tech to the VO stars. From Sydney, Darren Robbo-Robertson, audio engineer and producer at Voodoo Sound. From Chicago, Robert Marshall, from Someone Audio Post and co-founder of Source Elements. And finally, me, Andrew Peters, voiceover talent and founder of Real Time Casting. This week, part two of our interview with Chris Kent. And we're back with uh, the second part of our Pro Audio Suite. Good afternoon, evening, morning, night, daytime, whatever it happens to be, <laughs> whenever anyone's listening. Good GMT minus eight or whatever the heck it is. Or, or it could be good GNT, as in right. gin and tonic, because um, it could be that time somewhere. Um, it's, if, if this was uh, uh, QI, the Stephen Fry show, Robbo, you would be the Alan Davis character, I think. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> no, not a problem. It's like we've got two intelligent people and Robbo. And Robbo, you doing? he's just there yeah. to you know, fill the yeah. gaps. You mean the guy that Ricky, Dr- anyway. Ricky Gervais sends around the world, that guy? Is that Robbo? <laughs> no, not that guy. No. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Please. Is there a budget for this show? <laughs> uh, just VG will do. I don't need to go that far. Exactly. Now, a couple of things have been uh, we've been talking about. One thing that uh, I, I had to look at this week um, just for getting an idea of what's actually being captured with a voice, a voiceover job, is the Avatone cubes, the the um, active one speaker cube monitors. They're kind of like the old Oratones, I suppose. What do you, what do you think of those, George? Oh man, I've seen them. I'm familiar with them. But frankly, the concept of using Oratones kind of predates my life as a you know as an engineer. Um, I'd seen them used in studios. And I guess the concept behind them is that they are kind of, they're not, they don't have a ton of high end. They don't have a ton of low end, or they really have no low end. And the idea, I believe, was to sort of replicate what someone's kind of run of the mill home speaker might sound like. So I think that was the concept. Robert, you might know a bit more about that. Yeah, they, they, um, sort of kind of a 70s, 80s speaker sort of were replaced by the, Yamaha NS10 as the um, speaker that was used to figure out how your mix is going to translate once it goes on to some crap from the consumer market. Um, so Oratones have no tweeter and they're, I think, what are they like a four inch driver or something like that? Yeah. Um, I actually have a, in the studio I'm at right now, there's a pair of the Avatones and then I have an older pair of Oratones, uh, which their nickname back in the day was Horatones, by the way. <laughs> yes, that's um, right. Yeah. Along with the uh, Tanoys, whose nickname was Anoys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the um, they're, they're basically tweeterless speakers that were meant to emulate anything from really uh, like your car speakers, especially back in the day when you just had, you know, maybe six by nines at best with no tweeter. With a whizzer, a whizzer cone. Exactly. Had the the fake tweeter just <laughs> a, and then um, they they were replaced by NS tens. I don't know that um, you know. Do they apply these days? I'm I'm not sure if they apply as much because 
things like I, I think they're more going towards like this the crappy speaker test is more being pushed towards uh laptop size speakers. Um but they could still emulate a speaker similar to maybe what's built into a flat screen TV. Yeah. They might do fairly well at giving you an idea of what that might sound like. I do know a guy that uses them. Um Simon, he's probably listening to this at uh, SMR in Melbourne. He uses them just to get a, a, a good idea of like uh, mouth noises, like without a tweeter, really. Yeah, well, yeah, he can. Oh, seems odd. Yeah, that's what he. Um, I'm sure that's what he was telling me. But he uses them all the time. In fact, he's got a really unusual pair. They've got two two speakers per box. Weird. Oh, that's definitely that's definitely different than the original you know, yeah. Oratone. I don't have some. I don't have. Actually, I'm not sitting in front of the the interweb, but if someone pulls it up quick, we could probably see the frequency response. I would imagine the frequency response doesn't get up to 20, probably. I mean, no tweeter, so George yeah, Simon, interesting. I, I, um, I yeah, I think it's it's sort of anachronistic the need to use anything like this. But my opinion of anything like this is if you get great sounding results from the from the speakers that you're using maybe keep using them. Um, because once you know your speakers, uh, no matter how horrible they sound, that's, that's all that matters. I mean, if you know weight, it's all about translating. As Robert said, if you know the way something should sound, I agree then, and it translates to the rest of the world, then you, you've got the right speakers. Uh, would I choose these? Heck no. Yeah. I, I think that they don't apply. I think they're, to be honest, I think they're a little bit part of the whole vintage music gear thing where it's like we people used to mix Retro. on these in the 70s and 80s, so bring them back. And it's true that there's not been a product like that for a long time. If you want a tweeterless speaker, it's the one. It's the common one. Pretty much every speaker now has tweeters. But I think also for that reason that, you know, what's your target that you're trying to get an idea it will be like? And I think that that time has passed where consumer speakers have now gotten a lot better than the speakers, True. the consumer speakers from a day ago, you know, when they were trying to emulate crappy speakers in big jalopy cars. Well, the, the frequency response is, is notated as 90 hertz usable. It says this is the useful musical range in parentheses, 90 hertz to 17,000, which is pretty high, actually. Yeah. Wow. 17 yeah. Yeah. Wow. That so is pretty that's darn pretty high. useful, pretty usable. I, I wonder how similar they are to an actual pair of original Oratones, because mm-hmm. I wonder if original Oratones yeah. got up to 17K. I think it could. interesting. It was dependent on the, because Oratones were passive, so it depended on probably the amplifier yes, they, they were using. Avantone sells both, passive and active. No, the, no, the original, yeah, the original Oratones. Right. The originals were only passive. Yeah. yeah. So you were, so the, the apples to apples test is to get your, Whatever your pioneer amplifier from the seventies, and hook them up right. to a passive pair of Aventones, Avatones, and then your pass, then your pair of Oratones, and then you have to also consider that the original Oratones mm-hmm. are probably all stretched out, and they've you know lost a little bit well, of their. Spring. I might argue to say that these could so, be um, because of their very small size and reasonable price. They could be a good reference speaker for just editing voiceover if that's literally all you're doing. Like if you're just working with voice, yeah. I, I think they are. Ex- uh, How much are they though? Uh, I'll tell you, U.S. prices here. Sweetwater sells uh, the active cubes for two fifty each, so they're really actually not that inexpensive. There's a lot cheaper they options are, nowadays. Okay. 
Not at all. Yeah, I mean, like a pair of KRKs is going to compete sonically, yeah. I, I imagine, way better mm-hmm. for the same price. What were the ones that came out from Oritone a few years ago? Was it f- the five C's or something like that? Is that right? Am I wrong in saying that? Yeah, yeah, they yeah. had they. They kept them going on for a while, and they had the, they had different ones that you know back when people had computer monitors that were shielded. Yeah, I mean the original ones had a crappy sort of it, it wasn't even wood. I, I'm not too sure what the wood was, yeah. but it was like it, a sticker. Yeah, that it, like, I know yeah that's exactly right. what it was. It was veneered. <laughs> it, it was yeah. veneered, and it was yeah. chipboard. Oh, yeah, I remember. Someone stole one from our radio st- yeah. <laughs> from our production studio. Oh, really? Yes, we had a pair. One was missing. Well, you know, it's. I think it, it's a retro thing. I I actually have the other one because I have one original one. I have two of the shielded ones, and then someone who sort of rents uh, out of my studio here has two of the Avatones with the uh, with the big red heat sink on the back for the uh, power for the amp. So, well, you'll have to listen to them sometime and get back yeah. to us, Robert. But they, will. Uh, like, yeah. if you had the one Avatone cube, uh, you know. Um, the active cube for 250 US, I think they're 375 Australian dollars here. Uh, you wouldn't need a pair, would you? You just need the one if you're working just editing a voice. Just working just on voice. Just voice acting, yeah. cutting, a net, cutting a track of a mono voice. That's all you yeah. need. So you that's a really yeah. good cost-effective way of setting up monitors. It is nice and small. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's a very small box. So that's nice about it. What did you say they're worth, George? I, 250 in the US. Uh, they're 480. Yeah, four eighty a pair, two fifty a piece for okay. the power. Well, I've just ones. done my due diligence on the five Cs. They've Sweetwater's got those. They're three forty nine. Are oh, those wow. powered or passive? Powered, and they do yeah. have passive. Passive, okay. pa- passive is one seventy four. And and are gotcha. those those are made by Oratone? The yeah, actual, they're actual. They're the literally five Oratones, right? Five Cs. Yeah. One one thing to say about them is that they don't have a crossover, and so they got that great wide frequency response. It appears with no crossover, and that might add some sonic purity to them actually well it's basically a bose bose speakers the original the original bose 901s were eight single driver drivers with facing backwards and one facing toward you yep and it was no tweeters right but the bose also had this at least i don't remember the 901s but the 801s had a box that you'd plug in and it was like a massive eq to basically it was it was a a disco smile eq treble And bass booster. I used to do live sound with those. So, do we reckon now, uh, backtracking, that uh, maybe the Avatones or the Oritones are not a bad idea after all? In theory, they make sound. They make, they make sound. sound, right? Well, they, they, yeah. the frequency, frequency response of these, the five Cs, is seventy-five to fifteen thousand hertz. So they're actually okay. A little less so that's, that's more than, in what I was expecting. Yeah. 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 So that means that the original Oritones were also more in that lower range. Um, like not not lower range, but didn't have as much high end. Mm-hmm. That's more of what I was expecting, and I I think actually for that type of speaker, that's what you want because you're trying to compare it to someone who's got yeah you know a crappy pair of speakers that doesn't have a lot of high end. How's my voice going to cut through when there's not a lot of high end? Right. Yep. Well, there you go. If you'd like to get uh, a, a cost effective way of getting a studio monitor, maybe the Avatone is the way to go. Now, the other thing that a blast in the past, and I just heard somebody say, I think it was actually um, in the interview with Chris Kent last week. Anyway, somebody mentioned Virtual Glass just as a throwaway, and that reminded me of a company that actually was called Virtual Glass. Uh, whatever happened to those guys? Actually, it was called E-Session. Oh, was it E-Session? So E-Session, yeah. So um, it was started really, really 
um, maybe within a year after or so of Source Elements starting. And I think her name was Gina. And she was a music engineer out of Texas. Really, really cool person. And she had this sort of complete idea of an ecosystem. And the whole thing was, um, in, as my understanding was, it was more of a sort of a talent agency, almost like very similar to some of these pay-to-play sites for voiceovers. But are you a bass player? Are you a singer? Are you a mix engineer? Are you a tabla player? Whatever. You're a musician. You want to hire other musicians. Um, you could go to her site. And she would handle uh, sort of finding the talent, bidding the job, awarding the job, file transfers, making sure that things were paid, paid escrow for, you know, getting paid for doing your session. And one of the things that she added to it was um, Virtual Glass, which at the time was an Artez plugin. We actually, it was kind of funny, we actually discussed some things with her, but it was an Artez plugin that kind of did basically what Source Connect did at the time. I don't know what codec it was using exactly. Um, but probably AAC, I'd assume that would be a good choice and, um, had a fun GUI. The GUI was basically the picture of a, uh, of a studio and you were kind of looking at it through the glass window. So that's where the name came from. And it had a very simple interface. It had a, a U fader. It had what looked like a board, like a old analog mixing board with two faders. And one said you, and the other one said, or me and them, I think. With yeah. the two faders. Um, so funny, the, that's how I used know, the, to label equipment for my voice actors. Yeah, well, and Me that's how and them. That's how Gina was, you know, uh, approaching it as well. And the the GUI kind of was a little bit bulky. You know, like here's a picture of a whole mixing board and glass and even some speakers. It kind of unnecessarily took up some space, but that made it fun. And um, and then it, the idea was that you could monitor through it. I don't believe it had any of the transport locking features that Source Connect had, or certainly not the restore and replace system. So it was mainly a monitoring tool for, um, you know, to be used with these various uh, clients or musicians that you would hire through her site, or maybe to be used as like a remote mix. And it all went belly up. I, I remember she at AES had like three booths, and one of them would be a bedroom, and she'd get a bed and furniture in there and everything else. And the other one would be an office and the other one would be a studio and like really, really fabulous looking booths at the AES show. But I know that that is also tremendously expensive to, to produce those things, which is essentially just for a weekend. And so I'm I'm not too sure how many years ago, but I imagine around 2010. Sounds like she uh, overextended her marketing budget. I think so. And I think the other thing was that it was a little bit too scripted. And that's something that I was, when, when we were working and we still work at Source Elements is here's this tool and it has its way of working, but we try not to force everyone too far into our exact workflow. You're going to upload your files here. You're going to transmit your audio this way. It's like, you know, try to be malleable and, and insert yourself into all these different people's systems, make it flexible and let them find the workflow that works best for them. So it was, it was a very sort of controlled environment, um, which may or may not have worked. I'm not sure about that. But then the other thing I think that's always tough with all these pay-to-play systems is once someone finds the talent once, what keeps the client and the talent from just working with each other outside the system? You know, how do you fund your, your business if that's what's going to happen? But that's what I know about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because I remember that coming out and it was just uh, around the same time that... Um that I was aware of uh, Source Connect. 
I, I wonder what Gina's up to because she was a very cool person, very, very tech oriented. You know, I, I'm not sure exactly where discography is, but certainly, you know, a history of working with major label records, and and uh, I'm sure we've been listening to mixes that she's done, and you know, she's a very cool person. Mm, interesting. This is Harlan Hogan on the Pro Audio Suite, or as we say in South America, this is Harlan Hogan on the Pro Audio Suite. Talking of glass, uh, this is a, something I've discussed with uh, both Robert and George, um, is the patio, sli- patio sliding door uh, used on the booth. <laughs> uh, I, I, <laughs> I saw one video with George um, Alison Packard studio that you built in LA, which had an external door, which was a, a sliding patio door. And I also was jumped on the website of your studio, Robert, which is some one S U M one, the number one in Chicago. And I, first thing I looked when I had looked through the gallery, uh, was sliding patio doors. So how yep. do you, how do you find them? At the hardware store. Super effective. <laughs> yes. <good. laughs> um, yeah, no, they are extremely effective. And I've done sliding glass doors in a couple of studios. I've gone crazy. Um, in the studio I'm at right now, I've got a pair of sliding glass doors, which are actually specifically designed for studio purposes. But even with that, to get really a full, you know, like STC 64 out of the whole system, I'd use two of them. And um they they were cost a pretty penny, far more than the ones that you find at the hardware store. And when we did someone, um, just you know, comparing prices and performance and what really does it take to make something soundproof, um, we did some experiments and we found that you know you can get great bang for your buck out of just the hardware doors, um, you know, at, at, or the doors from a hardware store, because a lot of what makes these doors soundproof. Um, and a lot of what I realized about the acoustic doors that were official studio doors that I purchased for my studio were that a big part of it is just making them uh, sort of airtight in a sense. I imagine many doors that are weatherproof, if they've got some layer of you know thickness to them and they're also weatherproof and therefore in a sense um, you know airtight, they're going to start working really well. And you put two of these doors together and you have a lot of isolation. They work extremely well. The um, thing you have to watch out for is the really inexpensive ones. They start to use really thin glass. And so at some point, the door starts to become a drum or a resonant head. And so you got to watch out for that. You got to make sure that they have thick enough glass that they're not going to resonate. And then you put two of them in a system and, you know, for a grand a door, maybe less, 500 bucks a door even, somewhere in that price range, you're going to get extremely good... um, acoustic isolation from them. Yeah. That's what I told uh, my client that I put those in for, you know, in the end they weren't high enough spec. I, I would have, if I did it over again, I would have had one of the windows, at least one layer of glass in one of the doors replaced, reglazed with laminated glass, which is much, much less resonant. Um, because even with four layers of glass between the outside and the inside, they're all the same thickness. None of them are particularly thick. And that is what happens. They do ring like a drum at times. So she's been happy with it so far. It's been good enough. So she hasn't made that expense, but that is something to look out for. If you need the highest level of isolation, make sure the glass and at least two panes of that glass in that system is much thicker, heavier, and or laminated glass, I think. Yeah, I, I don't even think it's for the isolation. I think it's just for the resonance. Like the, right. uh, it's, it's all that 
space, like the two doors with a little bit of space. I mean, the more space you put between the two doors when you mount them, better. the much better separation you're going to get or isolation you're going to get. But it doesn't matter the first door, like the one that you want to put that big heavy glass on is the door that's on the inside of your booth. Right. Because that's the one that's going to ring. Um, but yeah, they are they are very effective. And then the other great thing about them is they're so space saving because they become your glass and your door. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's what I've done here. I've got a sliding door here, but I do need another one because I, like I've mentioned before, I get that low frequency from, you know, like a, a bus or a coach going past. So that, that sort of bleeds in. But I think another one will work. But then it's the gap, isn't it? It's got to be the sort of 100 mil or four inches between each door. We did really, I am really happy with what, what we got at someone. And we have maybe, um, you know, because like two of them are closer and two of them are farther when you put them together. You know, you have to think about how you're going to um, put them together because you need the outside handles on both sides. So you got two fixed panels and then two sliding panels. And the sliding panels are going to be farther apart. But we may, we might have six or 10 inches max between them. Yep. And um, we, we basically built our booths with uh, kinetics blocks that sit the booth up. Oh, yeah. And then it's a couple layers of uh, drywall, typical booth with caulking, make it airtight, and they are soundproof. <laughs> we were really happy with, with, with the results. And so, yeah, it's an effective way to do it. Just make sure that glass is thick on the inside of that door, and you're, you'll probably be pretty happy. Well, do you mean, when you mean the inside of the door, you mean the side of the door that faces the loudest sound source? Because like in a voiceover booth, you're trying to keep the noise. Well, if you're, if, if you're using two doors... If you're using two doors... Well, you're in a voiceover booth, you're trying to keep the noise from the outside getting into your booth. But are you talking about trying to keep the... So, sure. Explain again, okay. be a little so, more clear. I always suggest, like sliding glass doors using one of them, yeah, you're not really going to get great isolation. You'll get some, but it's not spectacular. When you, when you couple these two doors, so two sliding glass doors together, you start to get extremely usable results, especially, like we said, with more gap between them. So one door is on the inside of your booth. One door is being hit directly by your voice, and that's the one that you want with your heavy glass, so it doesn't act like a drum. The second door, you could probably actually cheap out on a little bit, because at that point, it's got the air gap, and if it rings, who cares? not as much of an issue because it's not getting back into your mic um, probably. Yeah, I see. Mm. Yeah, I'll keep using them. I always, I spec them whenever they're possible. I'm doing a studio. There's an entire house being built right now and that's what we're putting into the booth is patio doors. So it's a nice, effective way to get glass, lots of vision, lots of visual. It makes a small booth feel larger um, and then you can always hang a heavy drapery over it and just open and close if you need to. Absolutely dial back the light and, and it is extremely affordable you know if you take your normal door approach somehow you got to deal with that bottom sill so you're either you know your carpenter is trying to work with gasketing it and trying to make it close really tight or you're buying one of these super expensive iac doors which is basically not a, not affordable but extremely effective um, but by the time you pay carpenter to mess around with a, a normal you know like thick wood door you're going to probably end up spending, because even a good heavy wood thick door is going to end up costing you a couple hundred bucks. Maybe not. A real legit studio door that's made for studio use with all the correct seals and the two and a half inch thick door. Five grand. They start usually about twenty five to $3,000. Yep, absolutely. 
uninstall. Well, I, I've got actually, if anybody wants to buy some, I've got some, but I've got some solid core doors with the, uh, I don't know if you've seen them, George, but you cut off the bottom of the door and you install the, the drop louver, yeah, yeah. I think they call yeah. it. And it has a pin that called an automatic bottom. Yes. I've got one of those. Yeah. It's like, you start doing that. <laughs> right? you, you do that with your thick, heavy wood door <laughs> and it, it ends up costing as much as a as a wood door that you have to mess around with to get to the same performance yeah. level. And then you still got to get your glass as well. If you want some sight lines, it's just a great yeah. affordable way yeah. to go about doing it. Yeah. 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 I've actually just go. stuck a new door on the voice booth here. I've got uh, my voice booth is under the stairs and uh, kids sort of walking past, although they're reasonably quiet, but walking past while the wife was recording voiceover or I was doing something under there. Um, I just stuck a, a, a solid wooden door on it with some of that um, air seal stuff around the um, door frame. It's not perfect, but it certainly made a big difference to what was there before with a hollow door and nothing at all on the on the door frames. Soundproofing. Yeah, that's the thing is, about soundproofing. It's, it's yeah, air. you make incremental improvements, and each level of improvement costs exponentially yep. more. Right. You know. And so, from a hollow door to a solid core, a huge improvement, very small amount of money. From a solid core door to a studio door, pretty good improvement, huge amount of money, um, and then on mm. from there. <laughs> yeah, the, the the other thing about acoustics is that sometimes, you know, people are like, it's just like the kind of like more is better approach, and that's not necessarily always it. It's not it's not about how thick your layers are. Sometimes it's really about going around and the details and finding every little place that some air can get through. Because if air or light gets gets through, psh, sounds going right through there too. So caulk is like one of your best friends when it comes to isolating something acoustically. Acoustical chalk caulk is cheap. It's pretty cheap too. Yeah. We call it no more gaps here. Just to... <laughs> I, I actually um, just work on the theory of whatever I've got. I didn't do it with this one, but whatever materials I had that were all different, I just did layers of that. Um, so some could be mm-hmm. thick wood, some could be rubber, some could be, you know, MDF or something. Um the yellow tongue flooring, which is, um, I think you have yellow tongue, you call it yellow tongue in the, in the States, I guess. At hard, no, no, oh, it's I, like no. sheets of flooring with a yellow plastic sort of tongue and they connect together to make oh. the floor. Slips into the groove uh, of the next sheet sort of thing. It's like tongue, oh. tongue and tongue. tongue, tongue yeah, but the, tongue, the yeah. tongue's tongue yellow yeah. plastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So it's like thick uh, flooring. It's just chipboard, like rock hard chipboard. So I, I end up using that. So you click it all together, just bog it, bog the thing up, stick it all together, make sure there's no air. And then, you know, do a couple of layers of that with a, a gap with some acoustic, um, bats in there. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Nothing gets in. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Because, because it is about like each different material stops a different frequency range. So if you get too many materials that are all the same, you're going to build up in a sense, like a weak spot yeah. in a particular frequency range where that single material is always letting it through. That's why with the patio doors or any sort of double glazing, um, try and get a different thickness of glass on the other door so they vibrate yeah. at a different different level, different frequency. And and, and right. when, you, when you're at the hardware store, really look at how that door closes into the jam. You want that door to go inside the jam. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but imagine a U... And then a block going into that U. That's the kind of closure you want. Um, so that's that's what you want to look. And, and also the bottom track. The door shouldn't just be rolling on top. It should also be sitting in a U. Um, so that that's that's why these patio doors work because they're weatherproof. They don't let air through. That's where the sound stops. Yeah, beautiful. 
Now, there was one thing that happened last week, uh, which people may have heard. There was a, a gentle hum, which was very soothing. It was like white noise. Um, and it was coming from George's hard drive, which has now been moved. How did you fix that, George? Well, first of all, the fact that I even admitted <laughs> to having a in his room in my space is a monumental... Is this guy you should talk to? Um, just um, ask George or something like that, I think it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I'm breaking a, I, one of the rules of setting up a voiceover studio is never, ever mount a microphone boom arm to the same surface as your computer because mm-hmm. any and all vibrations from your hard drive or your computer fans or anything can get transmitted into your mic boom and into the mic. And that is exactly what I was doing. And, 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 and uh, even if you have a shock mount filter, like a good su- suspension mount on your mic, does that still happen? Still doesn't do it. Still doesn't. I have a shock mount. I have a high pass filter and the whole deal. And I still was getting this hum, this standing wave hum. Yeah. I have like a 7,200 RPM drive in this caddy that looks like a toaster. You ever seen those where the drive sticks straight up right out of the yeah, top? Yeah. I, I love those things. You just throw raw yeah. drives into them. It's great. Yeah. That's yep. great. Turns hard drives into floppy disks. Basically. Mm-hmm. Um, no, actually but, my car can do that. <laughs> what? <laughs> I just drive over the, yeah, the yeah. hard drive and now it's. <laughs> oh. <laughs> anyway. So yes, it was, there's still enough vibration, even with the little rubber feet on the bottom of the thing, it was still vibrating a little bit of a hum and it was soft, but there, and I was, while the guys were saying, you know, what's that noise? I'm running around the house trying to find something to stick under there. I would have preferred to stick a neoprene mouse pad under there. I couldn't find one, but they're really good at stopping that vibration. So if you have mouse pads around, they're awesome. Throw them underneath anything that has a motor, like a hard drive, spinning hard drive. That works great. In my case, I grabbed a kitchen towel, folded it into, you know, folded it down to a small size. So it's maybe a half inch thick and or a centimeter or so thick and, that's what it's sitting on, and it completely eliminated the hum. Perfect. Here, let's all, let's all have a moment of silence and listen to nothing. Wow, well, our noise floor is uh, awesome. Except for someone's phone. That's um, mine. Now, talking of- <laughs> yeah, good on you. Um, talking of noise, though, this is interesting. Now, this microphone I've got um, on a Rycote um, shock mount, which is great. So I can move the mic like I'm doing now. I'm just grabbing no- nothing at all. Well, very little. Um, but... The one thing that shock mounts don't do is isolate the cable. So the cable goes, right. like if I touch the cable, straight the into the mic. The cable's connected right to the mic. Yep. Microphonics. Yep. So how do you isolate the cable? If you've isolated your microphone, how do you isolate the cable? I'll tell you how cable? I do it. You, you take that cable and I, I usually give it a nice loop right around the, so I get lots of slack between the microphone and the first sort of tightening knob of the mic stand. And I give it a loop around there so that any cable movement stops at that tightening knob of the mic stand. And then don't touch the other cable, <laughs> the other part of the cable going from the, you know, between the mic and the tightening knob of the mic stand. You hear anything? Touch I'm touching my mic cable. Can you do that on radio? <laughs> I'm actually, I can hear it. I can hear it. I am yeah. probing it in different spots because I have it arranged exactly like you're describing, Robert. And if I touch it near the bottom, there's a little bit of noise because the actual arm itself is getting touched. But if I touch the cable at the top where the mic is. There you go. Oh, yeah. Yep. Dramatic difference. So, yeah, brilliant. I'm glad I did it right. Well, I'm just doing mine now, and I still guarantee you can probably hear it. 
Yeah, still doing it. It's a strange anomaly. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll do mine. So here's the, uh, the bottom cable. Oh, I see. Actually, now it's rattling on the. Uh, I can hear it. Yeah. Uh, well, I might not was loose. I know the feeling. I think we're all hitting it. It helps. It doesn't. It's not yeah. a perfect solution, but it definitely helps. Yeah. To wrap, to have a loop around. You definitely never want to have the end of your mic cable where it goes into the mic pulled tight. I see that a, a lot in studios where the mic is like being janked backward in the in its uh in its shock mount. Shock it's being mount, pulled, yep. you know, like on a diagonal because the cable at the top is pulled tight. Yep. You definitely Well, and not even because that. it's pulled tight. Sometimes you need to get that slack on there also because sometimes just the weight of the cable will pull that mic in its in its shock mount. And worst right. case scenario is it pulls that mic just down enough so it touches the frame of the shock mount, and now oh, yeah. you've lost the entire function of your shock mount. That's right. Yeah, Good but point. I do notice the Rodekite has a, a a clip which you can actually feed the um, cable through, but it just seems to be really tight, that's all. Mm-hmm. Well, all those oh, nice, yeah. sh- like the shotgun handle um, things, they, they usually have a way to feed the mic inside that sort of blimp um, that Rycote makes and cable management is a huge part of noise. I mean, you, you start to sometimes get the same issues with, um, with drums because a good energetic drummer is going to start, the mic stands will start shaking a little bit. Yeah. And then next thing you know, the mic stand shakes and the, and the, uh, mic cable is hitting the right. mic stand, yeah. you know, and now the mic stand and the mic cable are all part of the drum kit. You right. Not exactly. Yeah. So yeah, mic mic cable management is definitely very important. Well, there you go. Don't play with your mic cable is the uh, the motto there. Um, now it's time to uh, don't play check with out it or I'll fall off, <laughs> yeah, or you'll go blind. That's right. Uh, no, that's not the mic cable. What am I talking about? Anyway, um, let's go to the second part of our interview with Christopher Kent. Come in, London. One thing is I find interesting, uh, and it seems to be kind of unique to to the UK is a lot of voice studios in the booth, people sit down. Yeah, isn't that interesting? They're all set up like that. Now, I, when I first worked in uh, in the States, that was the first time I came across the idea of standing up. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't mind, really. I mean, I, I, I know Maurice always used to say to me, oh, well, it makes a difference to the sound, you know, because you're, um, you know, just the sort of mechanics of the body and, you know, what where, where the sound's going and so on. I don't know why why that difference exists, really, except that that's the way I grew up doing it. You, you walked into a studio and that's how it was. And I found some... When I was setting this up, because I did think about that quite a lot, you know, as having that by then worked in uh, studios in LA and other places where it was just assumed that you walked into a studio and you, you stood at the mic. Um, I did wonder about that doing here. We do have the option to do it and we ask people, but some of the older actors we had in were very, very resistant to it. Like, yeah. You want me to stand up? Where where do I sit? You know, and uh, so I never sort of particularly went for it to challenge that. Is that, is that common in Australia? Absolutely, well? yeah. It's all pretty much all stand. Yeah, yeah, it's all stand up. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, though, I, um, AP in my background is in radio. And the thing that always struck me from day one in radio 30 odd years ago was that the voiceover artists would come into the production suite to voice the commercials or the promos and would stand, but then they'd go on air and sit down. Yes, <laughs> that's right. So, <laughs> like, hang on. Which yeah, one's the, right? <laughs> yeah, but the weird thing now is you go to a lot of radios and it's studios and they're standing up because they move, has those desks that go up and down. So. Uh, there's a difference to the energy, I think, certainly. And I, so I would, um, if I'm doing an animation or a, um, something sort of character-based, I'd certainly want to be standing then because I want to move about. And uh, But I still, I, I, for me, for choice, if I'm, if I'm narrating a, 
a documentary or something. I think I, I think I want to be sitting. It's something to do with the address to the mic. I don't know. I've never really thought about it, but it's certainly. I mean, I've had this conversation with other people, and um, it's interesting. I, I don't know. I don't know what the the answer to it is really. No, it's 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 a historic thing. I think. I think it goes back to the early mm. early broadcasts. You know, from um, yes. Well, when of, yeah, when you 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 dressed in a dinner suit and a bow tie. To, yeah. Which of course I am now. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, you know. Were you? Are you all? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, it's eight, eight o'clock in the morning, and I've, I'm ready for my day. <laughs> my cummerbund's <laughs> cutting under my armpits at the moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's an interesting anomaly. Uh, I'd noticed that quite a few things that were quite different uh, in the UK. And I remember the first time I went back after getting into the industry in radio. And uh, I was seeing a friend at Capital. And I went into the studio in Capital Radio. And it was so different to any radio studio I'd ever seen anywhere. Um, With your studio, you we've talked about this before. um, You've got quite a lot of nice gear in there. But I also notice on your list you have... You mentioned road microphones. Mm. Do you know, um, when I, as I was describing earlier, when I was sort of thinking about setting a studio up or having to do it re- relatively quickly because of the sort of this pressure about installing ISCN, I was going around studios in Soho and I, I knew nothing about it at all. But all I knew was sometimes I thought, I like, I like the way my voice sounds on this. So I'd always say to them if there was the opportunity or I began to observe what, it, what, it, what is it you've got. And nearly always, um, when I had that instinct to ask the question, because I liked the sound, it was a Neumann U87, sometimes a Neumann U47 or something like that. But um, And so I, I just thought, well, that's what I've got to have. And th- the thing that struck me early on with doing a studio, and I've never really changed my view on it, and um, I think this is probably relevant to people starting out now, as well, I just felt instinctively that it had to be about what was the best I could make it, not not what was the least I could get away with, yeah. which is the two sort of diametrically opposed ways of looking at it. And I think you can, you could set out and think, well, what's the least I can get away with? And now you, the least you could get away with is, well, you know what, you can get a $50 USB mic and a, a laptop and stick yourself under a duvet and you could, you could be doing it for a, a few hundred dollars, but is it the best that you could produce? Probably not, and that's going to limit the amount of work, the kind of work that you can get. You you can only get low-end work if you produce low-end quality audio. And um, so I felt, particularly because at the beginning we were there was a resistance. There were studios who were actively saying, don't use these people because they can't possibly know what they're doing. Um, so I felt it just had to be the best sound it could be. So quickly worked out that a, a Neumann U87 cost, whatever it was, you know, then it, I think it was about two, two and a half thousand pounds, so maybe yeah, yeah, three yeah. or four thousand dollars new. And so I just kept going around saying, you haven't got one you don't want anymore, have you? <laughs> and eventually, after lots of people saying to me, don't be so ridiculous, a particular studio went, well, actually, yeah, we're just moving rooms and we've got this one, it needs reconditioning. And so I got it for a, a few hundred pounds at the time, took it to um, Sennheiser outside London and they serviced it. And, and so that's why I has, how I started. But I, I then thought it, this was a vulnerable position to be in, to have this, this marvellous thing that I only had one of. And um, somebody then said to me, you do know that there's a this thing called a, a road that's just been produced. Is this Australian, isn't it? Yeah, is yeah, it, it is. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's why it's good. Yeah. Um, and you know, you won't. You, you nobody will know the difference. And um, so I thought I should have a backup. And uh, so I acquired one of those. Um, this is way back. And um, and so when my Neumann went off to be serviced, I used the road. And I have to say, nobody ever commented on it at all. It, it, um, yeah. 
So I, I, you know, I, I think they're very, very good. I think, you know, if I, you know we, we can probably have a disagreement about this. I, th- I think there is a difference at the sort of um, transparency and frequency response. So the, I think if I'm, if you're blasting out a low, low prices um, <laughs> car or, or, or carpet ad, I, I don't think it makes a blind bit of difference. But I think if I'm doing a, a literary recording, a poetry recording or something, or a documentary, there is just an extra bit of sparkle on the Neumann, but it's a very minimal thing. And, you know, uh, so for the price difference, I think the roads are fantastic. Yeah. Well, is it look, I'm, I'm actually using it now, but I'm looking across the other side of the room and um, I've got a, a, you know, the original, they call the original Neumann, the Microtech Gefell, and mm. that's uh, probably close to 20 times the price mm. of the mic I'm on. And you kind of go, you know, really? And in fact, I had a session yeah. this afternoon. I ended up using this. Hmm. But they are pretty good. And He's a road so. junkie. Well, I'm not actually. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the German stuff, and I do have German microphones. But this thing just seems to do the business. And yeah, yeah and I, I also think that there are you as a as a performer, you get to know what works for you, both in terms of your sound, but also the way you want to use it. And I think that's really important as well. I don't think there's a, a one size fits all thing. I mean, I think um, yeah, certainly there's a difference. I I, I feel in. Um, some of the voices that we record, um, where I think one is going to work better than the other. Yeah. Um, actually, I think um, I think the, the Neumann works pretty well for everybody. But I've sometimes there's particular um, female voices we work with where I think the road actually sounds better. Um, there's just something about the frequency where I think you know, the colours better. I, somehow it, it's more truthful. It's you know I think you're talking about always you're talking about the last five or ten percent, aren't you? Of, um, yeah. Of information that's that's coming across, but it, it's very important, and I think that's that's what distinguishes well-produced audio from um, you know just kind of run-of-the-mill stuff. I was just going to say I've got to say there's nothing like a, a warm, rich voice closely mic'd with a U87 through some sort of very nice valve compressor and into a desk. <laughs> I don't think yeah. you can beat that. I, I, you know, if, if, you, if you put them side by side, as I think you say, as I think for rip and read stuff, there's probably not much difference. But when you really get down to ticks and tacks and you want that really close mic'd, warm, crystal clear, beautiful sound, I don't think you can go past a Neumann. The Neumann. Yeah. But uh, where do you prefer to work? Do you prefer working uh, at your place or do you, do you like to get out and work in other places and also going across to the States? I, I like a mix, really. I mean, I, it's nice to see other people. I mean, I think when, when we all set up our studios initially, it was slightly different for me because I was in London anyway, but some people sort of thought, this is my opportunity to you know buy that hill farm in a remote corner of Wales or whatever and, uh, and, and began to get a bit lonely after a while because yeah. they never, never saw anyone. So I think it is nice to... Um, but it's circumstantial. That may be you know, where you live and how you want to work. And we have a place up in, in Yorkshire which is uh, fairly remote and I sometimes go up there and work and I'm very happy doing it. But um, I, I love working in my own studio cause I, because I built it to be the way I wanted and I feel very comfortable in it. And it, you know, I can self-operate in here so I can sort of edit as I go along and uh, all of that. But I do, sometimes it's just very refreshing not to have to think about any of that side of it and just to sit there and let someone else take control and just sort of open yourself up to the, the process. Um, but I think variety is is what keeps you active as an artist. And um, I've always found it very interesting to be in other people's work environments. And certainly when I've done stuff in the States, I'm, it keeps you on your metal, really, because you can't sort of um, sit back on your laurels and think, everybody knows me and this is how I do it. You've got to sort of reinvent yourself, which I think is, is a good thing. It, it stops you falling into patterns. And So, I mean, purely in a physical sense, I'm, I'm very happy being 
here. And I must admit, sometimes I, I now persuade clients that it might be more convenient for them to come here as well than to take me somewhere else, which is just probably advancing age and laziness. But um, I wouldn't want to sort of be without uh, other aspects of it. It's all, and apart from anything else, you learn being in other, other environments. You watch people do things in different ways and uh, the way they treat your voice and um, different directors' methods of working. I mean, because a lot of the time for all of us, I think, I'm sure it's the same for you, we're self-directing, we're, we're doing it in isolation, trying to imagine or second-guess what, what someone wants at the end of it. And... Um, I enjoy it most when it's a collaborative process. I love working with directors and trying to work out what, what they want and um, you know, producing something that <clears throat> none of us perhaps knew we were going to do when we started. Uh, so, yeah, I wouldn't want to be without that. No names, no pack drills. Listening to you say watching what, what engineers do and, and sort of watching and learning, it occurred to me that I haven't even asked AP this before, but is there something that engineers do to your voice on a regular basis that really annoys you? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Um, the thing that annoys me, and I, well, it perhaps annoys a lot of people, but it intrigues me, uh, sometimes is when people, it's not so much in the studios, when they edit together different takes, which I don't think go together mm -hmm. at all. I mean, I've, and I know sometimes it's to do with time and so on, but I've um, I noticed working in the trailer market that um, sometimes you go in and people have a, they have the script and they have the, the rough cut of the trailer and everybody knows what it's going to be and you, you do your bit and that's all feels great. You can sort of see what it is. But quite often they don't really know what their campaign's going to be and so they just give you lists of lines, you know, maybe press quotes and um, you know, a few inner worlds and yeah. there was a man's and all that sort of stuff. And um, I think a large part of voiceover is storytelling and you know, constructing an arc, a narrative arc, even through a sort of short piece of copy. Um, and that's taken away from you because you don't know how the things are going to be connected. And sometimes when I listen to the end result, I think, well, that was com a completely different register. You know, I would not never have done that if I'd known that the two things were going to be alongside each other. But um, So that, that, in a sense, I mean, no, I mean, it's more in the other direction. Sometimes I think, God, that's a really great sound you've got there. And if I can, I'd ask them how they did it. Sometimes people don't want to tell you for understandable reasons, but um, I've always felt when I started uh, doing this years ago um, with some, you know, very senior and well-known actors. I remember one of them saying to me, um, "Your friend in the studio is the engineer. That's the person you connect with because you might have, you know, fifteen or twenty people out there having a morning out of their agencies." Um, and, you know, having something to say, and it can be very confusing because they might all say different things, but the engineer is your friend and you make sure you remember his or her name, even if you can't remember everyone else's, and develop a rapport with them. And I've always thought that was... I have huge respect for engineers and I think um, that's, you know, that I'd re strongly recommend that to uh, as, a, as a mode of action to uh, people starting out going into studios is make friends with the engineer and respect what they have to say, listen to what they have to say and... Uh, make that your sort of your source for the, the session. Bringing them a bottle of red wine is always a good idea too, can I suggest? Yeah. <laughs> yes, doesn't, doesn't usually I'm to that as well, yeah. could you? As long as they don't drink it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Save it for after. I remember a bit of advice I got from uh, one of my first days in radio working in a production suite. <laughs> it was, uh, was the, the guy that I was working for, a guy called Peter Kakura, who'd been around forever. He's well and truly retired now. We were talking about, you know, keeping the voiceover talent calm in the booth and all that sort of stuff and he said, you know, a good roll of the eyes will tell a thousand stories so. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh it's so true isn't it yeah well i mean i i've got um two stories about that one is um doing a, a, a campaign for uncle ben's rice and um sometimes the uh, the spots were 
you know, had quite a lot of copy in them and, you know, little recipes or things. And sometimes they were just, uh, the tagline was Uncle Ben's, perfect every time, like that. And um, you'd think, I dread it when people say it's only five five words because you think, you know, five pages and, you know, you you go through it. Five words, everybody's got an opinion, haven't they, about each one of them. And it was one of those sessions with a room full of people. And uh, so I sat down and went, uh, they went, oh, okay, here we go. Let's take one. And I went, Uncle Ben's perfect every time like that and they went oh that sounds great really good good thank you yeah um we're just going to talk about it and the talk back went off and you know you can see all these mouths moving and they come back so yeah no, no we really like that we really liked it but um i think the thing what we're trying to get in this campaign is that it it um it can't ever go wrong that people are you know very hung up about cooking rice and so we want to get across them that you know it's it's foolproof so could you lean on the word perfect that's uh, so, yeah of course yes yeah. so, so we right, take two Uncle Ben's perfect every time. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, let's just talk about it. And off they went. And the same thing. They came back and um, they said, "The thing is, it, it sounds really good. It's really good." But the thing is, the point is, it can never go wrong. It can never go wrong. You know, people are hung up about rice. You know, they really are. They they think you know I've done it right once, and then it'll stick the next time. So could you lean on the word every? So yeah, yes, I'm going to do that. So um, you know. Take three or thirty-three or whatever we were and by then. Um, Uncle Ben's perfect every time. Yeah, no, that no, that that seemed to get it. Yeah, I thought, yeah. We just talk about it, and you know, and they did it with every word, you know. So, and by the end of it, you're trying to stress every word in a five-word sentence, you know. So you're like, <laughs> perfect every time, uh, and um, then they all go away and they come back and they go, um, yeah, I quite like the first one. And yeah. um, and uh, but all the time that this is happening, this is why I'm thinking. About it, this is what Robo said. The guy, God, I can't remember his name. Great old engineer at um, Silk Sound or somewhere. It's it just he was looking at me with this kind of compassion, you know, with his eyes going, <laughs> going, just just bear with it, just bear with it. They, they, you know, they'll they'll get there and then they'll get there. And I think otherwise, I would have, uh, I would have completely filled it. But the other one was, um, I was sitting with a, a very well known actor whose name I won't repeat in case people know him but he's, he had also had a reputation of being a bit bad tempered in the booth he's still doing it now uh, well, and, Mr Baker um, <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment <laughs> but, I think yeah. you just did and um, <laughs> all I knew that he, was that he'd been Doctor Who yeah, and, yeah. Um, and, uh, and he was very nice to me but it, it was that thing we were sitting side by side and they were looking through the, the glass and there was everybody there because he was famous I suppose they wanted to be in the room with him and uh, you know 10 or 15 people out there and um, and they kept turning the talk back off and talking between themselves and I could tell this was irritating him and um, he was sort of starting to huff and puff a bit and um, then eventually he said, and I don't know if the mics were live or not, but he he was looking straight ahead as we were side by side. But he said sort of to me for their benefit, what's the difference between a voiceover and a toilet seat? And I went, and I didn't, you know, young actor, I didn't want to sort of offend him. I went, well, well, I don't know. And he went, a toilet seat only looks at one arsehole at a time. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. I know. <laughs> And uh, they didn't bat an eyelid, so obviously they didn't. Uh, the, it wasn't it, the, the mics weren't live, but it's, it's sometimes been a useful thought. You know, <laughs> yes. I've been sitting there with this process going on. <laughs> a toilet seat. I love it. I love to use that one. Yes, t- Tom Baker is notorious. There's the uh, famous um, offtake of him having an absolute hissy fit uh, doing a furniture commercial, which went viral some time ago. Just, just, just a quick one while we're on this bent. What's the longest you've ever spent in the booth to do one script? Well, obviously, there have been long sessions because they were long scripts sometimes. But um, I, I have, I mean, I, 
there have been uh, sessions that have gone on for two hours over a, a you know a short commercial <laughs> just for exactly those reasons really but i think it's just sort of um inhumane i don't think you, you know you you know that thing that comes up at the end of um films that's saying no animals are inhumanely treated <laughs> yes, because right. yeah. uh, i don't think you can um you know, I don't think the human brain or equipment can deal with saying things over and over and over again without it becoming completely meaningless. It does. That's and, exactly um, what happens. Yeah. And I, sometimes when that has happened, I've just said, look, can I, can we just have a break and go out and sort of, you know, clear our heads a bit because it's, um, it's impossible to do really. And, you know, sometimes you get people who constantly want to re rewriting and so on, which is, which is fine. Sometimes other information comes in and uh, you get those things. Do you find that with um, kind of remote sessions quite a lot where you think you're dealing with the, um, the people who are making the decision and they go, okay, can you just hold tight? We just need to call the client or something. And, yeah, um, yeah. and then you hear this conversation of them going, Oh, right. Oh, oh, really? Oh, okay. And then they come back and tell you something completely different. <laughs> that wasn't what Guess what? what you I had one of those today. But, and you'd think, you know, it's, uh, I suppose the point is we're, we're doing this process every day, so we kind of know what order you should make your mind up about things in. But uh, other people, it perhaps isn't so obvious. So I think sometimes clients don't understand what they're being asked when they're being asked to sign off a script or they think it's like word processing that they can change it afterwards. And um, so they then say, oh, no, I didn't know it's going to be that quick. And you say, well, but that's because of the number of words you put in. That, that's, not a, that's not a choice that we're, we're making. That's, yeah. that's a, an outcome of the choice you've already made. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I, there was one of my favourite uh, instances of that was a, uh, going back a few years, but it, it was an ISDN session and, you know, you have a picture of how many people there are in the, in the on the other side of the virtual glass but you don't really know and um this was I'd, I'd, a producer who'd said to me um they'd got this advertising idea it was for a um a clothing sort of d discount designer clothing outlet called the yorkshire outlet um and uh, they wanted to do it in the style of um they'd written this piece quite nice in the style of you remember ian drury and yeah, yeah. Um, hit me with your rhythm stick yes. so it was like clothes and ties and da 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 yeah. visit the yorkshire outlet like that and they'd, they'd asked me if i could kind of sound like him and i played around with it and i said well i think i probably can yeah and um so we um we did this 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 session and it was one of those long ones there were a number of scripts number of variations on this and we you know it was the producer who i knew and the agency and that somewhere in the back of the room had been introduced the client who never said anything and um we went through all these uh, great pile of scripts you know honing the the region oh, visit the yorkshire outlet and, da, 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 da. and um just about to sign off it on it and they went oh it's all been very good thank you and this voice piped and said um, may I say something anyone who's um, this is the part of the world I come from but Yorkshire which is a, a very proud part of the, the UK yes. they call it God's own country uh, they have a very particular view of the world which mostly revolves around the fact that they're always right and everyone else is wrong <laughs> but there's a, there's a variation on, on that which is the posh Yorkshire person who, um, who thinks they're a cut above and they come from usually come from somewhere like Harrogate and they talk in this slightly sort of um, very precise way and um, they, uh, this woman piped up and she said may I say something please and uh, they all went oh yeah of course yeah absolutely and she said um, may I just say he's doing it with a cockney accent like this which of course cockney accent being the London yeah. voice which Ian Drury had and there was this kind of stunned silence you know because the whole campaign was based around the fact that it was supposed to sound like Ian Drury and, uh, and they went well yeah but that's because it's Ian Drury um, and she went, yes. And they said, but, you know, the, the thing is, Ian Drury was, was a Cockney. And she went, he may very well have been, but we are a Yorkshire company. Like that. 
there was this, this kind of sense of, you know, legs being chopped off at the knee and uh, everybody kind of falling over going, we've been talking about this for weeks and we've been in the studio for two hours with this guy, you know, who hired to sound like this person. So I said, well, what, what, would you, what would you like me to do? Do you want me to sound like Ian Droy with the Yorkshire accent? So that's what we did, you know. Is that right? That being, you know, yeah. That would have been very so, funny. Yeah, visit the Yorkshire outlet. It kind of landed up like that. <laughs> Fantastic. Completely pointless. <laughs> I had a very strange one happen to me some years ago where I, I call from a friend of mine who's an engineer. He said, um, do you do a Swedish accent? <laughs> what? <laughs> Can you do a Swedish accent? I went, uh... No, not really, no, why? And he said, well, we've got this script and they've determined it's got to be someone who's Swedish speaking English. Uh, and we've tried a guy from uh, a Swedish guy, but he just couldn't cut it. It just didn't happen. And I said, but that, why, would you, why would you get someone who's not Swedish to try and put on a Swedish accent? Because anyone who is Swedish is going to go, that's, that's like the guy from The Muppets, <laughs> the, the chef. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so um, he said, well, what, what do you think? And I said, look, I'll tell you what, send me the script. I'll just record something, send it back. You can play it to them and then see what they think. So we ended up making up this generic kind of <laughs> sort of pseudo-European, <laughs> Swedish, Italian, whatever accent. Because I, I said to them, look, it doesn't matter who listens. No one's going to be offended because no one knows where the hell this guy's from. So, and they went with it. You see, it's probably invented a, a part of the world that this person came I from. Did. As you say, nobody can tell you you're wrong because you're the you're the only person who knows. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah, absolutely. Now I know you've got a rush. So, um, one final question: How do you see this industry, whether in the UK, US, here, looking in the next five or ten years? What do you think will be the biggest change? It's a good question, isn't it? And um, crystal ball gazing is a hostage to fortune because I don't think I could have. Um, predicted where we are now, five or ten or fifteen or twenty years ago. But um, I think inevitably, um, people worry in our profession. Pe- you know, established voice talents worry that it's more and more people are doing it, and that there's more and more competition because it's more and more accessible. And I think that process will only continue because technology becomes more and more accessible. And I don't think it's something you know, we own or should be defensive about or protective about. The only thing I would say is that high quality will always be high quality. Doing it well will always be better than doing it badly. And um, if you want to continue to make a living in the business, you must try and do it as well as you can and offer the best possible product you can to your client. Um, Because I think that there will always be downward pressure on prices. And we all encounter this. I mean, the days of the, you know, I remember when I first went with my agent going to a drink stew and people telling me that they'd, you know, they'd earned 20 and 30 and 40 grand for, you know, campaigns. Those jobs, if they exist, are few and far between now. So you're ploughing a different furrow and you have to accept that there will there is a certain area of the business that's going to be cheap. I mean, if I'm recommending to a client um, what music they want on their piece, I have to say to them, if you're going to play it in a movie theatre, you, you've got to spend money on it. And, um, you know, you might want to hire a symphony orchestra or something, you know. If it's going in a lift, don't hire a symphony orchestra. What's the point? It doesn't matter because in that application, it's a secondary part of what's going on and you may as well just use the cheapest piece of library music you can. 
What that, I think, tells us as voice talents is that don't be the person in the lift because you, you'll never make very much out of it. If it's just something you do for pin money, then having a, a $35 USB mic and a, the cheapest laptop in your back bedroom is probably enough, but that's the market you'll be operating in. Um, and I think there will be more and more of that. I think that's where the, the growth will be because there will be lots of applications where it doesn't matter that much. But the way to look is to find what difference you can make. I think a human voice communicating truthful, emotionally charged information, which, you know, it, it's easy to say when you're looking at a piece of beautiful poetry, less so when you're looking at a piece of advertising copy, but the same rules apply. That's the skill we have to hone. That's what we have to market. And I think that's where the difference will be made. And as business becomes democratised, it, it's possible for anybody now to be a photographer to an extent that, that everybody's got a camera on their phone, but we're not all going to be David Bailey. Um, everybody can be a voice talent, but if you're wanting to make a, a living at it, be the best one you can be, hone your craft, go to classes, understand the mechanics of what you're doing, understand the equipment you're using, and make the biggest difference you can to your clients. So I think it will, the business will only continue to grow, and I think that recording technology will become more portable. You'll always have to do it somewhere quiet. I mean, that's that's never going to change. And it's always going to be um, the most exposed part of the finished product, so you won't be able to get away with recording it in a an airport or a farmyard or wherever, unless it really doesn't matter. But that, that I think that would be, if I have a prediction, that's what it would be, that recording technology will become more and more portable, but that the high end will always be the place where you can make the best living, but that you must get better and better and better at it. That, that would be what I would predict. Mm. I must actually go and see uh, Maurice Tobias. <laughs> well, if she's listening, hi, Maurice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> no, but it's... Uh, I think, you know, I think... The, 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 interesting enough, my, I was talking to um, one of my kids who's uh, sort of on training to be a musician, and um, she plays the, the flute, and uh, it's a very competitive instrument. There's lots of very good players. Um, and I said the same thing to her that Maurice said to me years ago, which is that, you know, that in a competitive marketplace... There are always 50 or 100 people who can do what you can do, but there's only one person who can do it the way you do it. And what you therefore have to do is be the best you that you can be and understanding yourself and your voice, I think, in our case. What is your voice print? What do you leave behind after you've gone out of the room? That's the unique thing you have, and that's the thing you have to try and get the best understanding of that you can. Um, and that's why I think ultimately people will pay so much for a celebrity voice, for, you know, famous film stars to do voiceovers where nobody can see them and nobody probably knows is that they bring a point of view, they bring themselves to the table. And I think it's harder when you're not terribly famous, but you do have to do the same thing, really. You have to bring your unique perspective, your point of view. Um, and that's what's compelling to listen to. So try and be the best you that you can be, I think. Yeah, and also the fact is we don't have to be famous. Our voices have to be. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's a strange anomaly uh, in the UK. Christopher Kent, thank you. Um, standing up or sitting down, like in America and here, we tend to stand up when we do voiceovers. Having said that, I'm sitting down right now. Uh, but over there, the, the norm is to sit down. Mm. What's better? I don't, and there's obviously a reason why uh, sitting down and standing up. I think up it's a personal a decision. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you find it makes a difference, Robert, when you've got someone in the studio? So most everything I do, the talent is standing up. Usually, um, it's funny, funny enough, we did have, uh, I should remember his name, but the, the actor who played 
the older husband who left one of the Downton Abbey daughters at the altar. Someone knows the season and episode I'm talking about. Ooh, but, which um, season? I'm watching it so at the he moment. So he came in, oh, one or two. Oh, I the, know the, the guy. Yes, I know the guy. He's also in Toast of London. Yeah, the smiling chap, tall chap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know he Yeah, mean. so he was in some plays. He was playing, actually, Prince Charles in a series of plays here at the Steppenwolf Theater, I believe, in Chicago here. And so he was using our studio as a remote studio for some something TV, like a TV show or a TV product. I can't remember exactly, in uh, England. And so he wanted to sit down. And I was like, okay, sure, here you go. <laughs> and we set him up with a chair in there. But most uh, artists, you know, voiceover talent that we work with, are, they're usually standing up. I always thought that was better because I certainly learned when you were singing and for breath control and diaphragm and certainly with, you know, a good voiceover talent, they're very aware of their breath control. Standing up doesn't crush the diaphragm in the same way and you have um, theoretically a better performance, better projection. Um, Beyond that, I, I know of no other technical reason why one matters than the other, except that I believe that people can usually seem to be able to be quieter standing up than in a chair, unless you have a chair that's all sorted and doesn't have any little creaks and whatnot. Yeah, the studios here in LA, and I haven't been in that many, but the ones I have been in here in LA that have a chair, the chair is usually a very heavy deck chair or something made out of iron or steel that doesn't move, doesn't pivot, doesn't raise up and down. Just a very heavy, heavy duty chair. Do not want that chair to make noise. No, no wooden chairs creaking. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Nothing that can creak or whatever. But yeah, I think Robert pretty much said it all. I, but, but there's also a lot of it has to do with it from the voice actor's perspective, their comfort. If you're doing an audio book for six to eight hours a day, no, you're not probably Absolutely. going to stand. Um, yeah. If you're doing um, a spot for Spike TV and you're doing a youthful, a youthful high energy read, you're probably going to stand doesn't mean you don't have to stand to get that sound, but it's a heck of a lot easier. Um, and so it, I think a lot of us to do with energy level um, is a big part of it. I, I used to think that way too, but see, then in that interview, we were talking about how in the UK, sitting down is absolutely the norm. You walk into a studio, no matter what you're doing, and you expect to be sitting down to do your voiceover. So yeah, it's interesting how... I guess it's what we're all used to because I thought exactly the same as you guys. I'm, I, I was completely on board with that. Um, and, and then in that interview, it changed my mind. Well, it didn't change my mind, but made me think completely about how we do it. One thing I notice about the, like, you know, the talent that I record is when they're in the studio. So that I only know us talent and I don't know if this is or isn't a us, UK, European, Australian thing, but um, a lot of talent are very animated with their hands and they use their hands as a way of um, sort of creating the emotion and the energy. So their hands are all over the place. And in fact, it's often a problem that they come in with the wrong shirt. You get the wrong shirt that's kind of crinkly and yeah. noisy and you move, you're yeah. moving around too much and it's like you, you, you're fighting that. But um, And I think that that's a little bit harder maybe when you're sitting down to to get that body energy into it because the whole point of sitting down is to spend less energy. Um, well, that's a good thing if you're a Brit because uh, we don't like to be perceived to be too animated. <laughs> that's awfully American. Sure. Yes. <laughs> I, well, I think that's true too. Yeah, I, I think, think that's actually. I think the thing, like as voice acting in, in, in England or for, for broadcast especially, it's, it's about being composed and chill. 
Yeah. And in, in America, we fly off the freaking handle and we do pickup truck commercials and we act like nuts. Yeah. Um, you right. know, so there, there's a cultural just difference. Taste. Yeah. I'm wondering if the guy at the soccer games who goes, goal, I wonder if he's sitting down or standing up. Sitting down. Probably <laughs> sitting. Or lying down when he falls off his chair. Yeah. When he runs yeah. out of air. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that guy. Well, it's so interesting because of the um, the different styles, because as much as, you know, English style might be a little bit more subdued and I'm sitting down, I don't need to be animated. And then the U.S. style tends to be a little bit more salesy and energetic. And then you do the Hispanic market stuff. And I like, sometimes I'm like, really, that's what you want. And it seems so announcery and so over the top and overly energetic. And it's just, you know, culturally different styles. I, I mean, how's it going in Australia actually, as far as your typical announcer, who's, what's your cliche for an Australian announcer? Oh, well, there you go. Robbo, you can probably answer that. What do you reckon? Okay. Yeah, I'd, I'd say mostly sit. Definitely. Oh, that's for commentary. We talk about like an announcer, maybe like a. Just style. Yeah, yeah the style. But uh, yeah, so it, our style is kind of like a, a, it's more American, I think, in the delivery of scripts and stuff than it is British. Okay, uh, sure. The British thing is much more, it is much more laid back. And I mean, you listen to the promos on the BBC and 10 o'clock tonight, QI with Stephen Fry, blah, blah, blah. But uh, and another interesting thing about just body position and performance, I've seen a lot of voice talent who will choose to pick up the script and kind of hold it above the mic. And that gets their, their face and their chin up yeah. and changes the tone a lot. And compared to when you're looking down and therefore your chin is blocking your, your throat and it congests things a little bit more. So, you know, it has a lot to do with your tone of your whole body position, st- sitting, standing where you're looking literally. I always find it difficult because I read with a monocle and a cigar. Um, so, <laughs> and he can't hold the script because he's got a bottle, a glass of scotch in one hand and the bottle no, in the a other. Claret. So, a glass of claret. Yeah. All right. So the blind, the blind voiceover guy that I was recording, I had to keep on telling him that he's like dragging his fingers too much, and I could hear him reading. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there was one in Sydney, a guy who. Oh, really? Matt Ponson. Matt Ponsonby. He was actually also a radio announcer in that same first radio job that I was talking about. He worked there. And my job on a Friday afternoon was because he only did weekend shifts. He would actually come in and I'd have to, with his Braille machine, and I'd have to read him the, um, the names and CD numbers of the CDs in the CD library so he could put the Braille on the, on, the, um, on the outside, on the spine. So when he walked into the CD library, he could feel his way around and find his CDs and all that sort of stuff. And all his carts. That is so cool. All his carts yeah. had to be Brailled. And if you worked on a weekend, you would expect this phone call in the production suite a couple of times an hour where he'd say, can you come down to the on-air studio and tell me what the weather's like outside? I saw him doing a voiceover and I, I remember sitting, it was at Triple M in Sydney and I remember looking at the, uh, Vinnie Shannon was the engineer there. Oh, wow. And I said to Vinnie, I, I said, I can't believe this guy. He's, he's memorised the script. That's insane. <laughs> and uh, Vinnie didn't say a word. Of course, I didn't realise until I went in there afterwards that he hadn't been reading yeah. with his eyes, but with his fingers. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, he'd actually, he'd turn up usually 10, 15 minutes before the session and if if you were busy, he'd get someone to read him the script with his on. He'd type it up on his braille machine. It was brilliant, absolutely. Yeah, brilliant. he was yeah. amazing. Good voice too. Mm, absolutely. All right. On that, that note, really cool. I think we should um, slam the door on another pro audio suite. Let's go to lunch. Oh, lunch! Come on. Or dinner, as it were. Or dinner. Yep. 
Or, is it supper or dinner? Or for Robert, of course, it'll be uh, pizza and a video, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I do like pizza, it's true. <laughs> A pizza pie. Well, we by can't the way. all oh, eat caviar pie. like you, yeah, Andrew. Right. Let's be honest. That's yeah, yeah. I just dropped my cigar actually in my caviar. That's really annoying. <laughs> um, shouldn't have laughed. No. Let's reassemble in a couple of weeks, shall we? I think that's probably a very good idea. Mm. In the meantime, stay safe. Goodbye, goodbye. Wipe the tear, baby, from your eye. Though it's hard to part, I know. Tickle to death to go, don't cry, don't sigh There's a silver lining in the sky Bonsoir, old thing, cheerio, chin chin, na poo, toodaloo, goodbye